This message is part of the series, Asking for a Friend, what we all think, but think we shouldn't. The entire series can be found at fromthefray.com slash asking. Hey, welcome back to Asking for a Friend. Uh, we're in week six of our study, just walking through the book of Ecclesiastes together. Last week, the last thing we heard Solomon say was uh, this verse right here. Talk is cheap. Amen. Talk is cheap like daydreams and other useless activities. Fear God instead. Now that term, fear God, is a very misunderstood term. Many people don't understand why those two words are together. God and fear. It's misunderstood. Consequently, many people get the wrong idea about God. Many people wonder, I I get it, when they they hear the term fear God... Does that mean he's like a cosmic warmonger? Like he's some jerk in the sky throwing lightning bolts down to keep us hopping and scared and tense? Well, Solomon didn't seem to think of God that way. Uh, But he used the term fear God over and over and over. So what did Solomon think that meant? What did he mean by that? How do we fear God and why is that a good thing? Well, almost as if he anticipates that question. What does it mean? He starts to unpack it. And through the rest of five and chapter 6, which we're going to be in today, 5 and 6, he starts to explain what it means to fear God, and he does it in an extremely personal, extremely practical way. I'll tell you up front, this is a personal message, because Solomon, for this message, has his hand on our wallet. He's talking about our money. For some reason, Solomon seems to think that fearing God is best understood through the context of money. Almost as if the two are inseparably linked. Our relationship with God and our relationship with our money. Jesus seemed to think the same thing. He said in Matthew 6, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now that's a pretty straightforward statement. And the Bible is full of straightforward statements about money. I've heard it said, I haven't confirmed this, but I've heard that the Bible says more about money than it does about heaven. Could be, if that's true, it could be because we often confuse the two. Regardless, they have a lot to do with each other. Our relationship with God is personal. Our relationship with our money is personal. And even though the Bible gives lots of straightforward statements about how to understand this, we still have a hard time understanding money. I want to ask this week, I think Solomon's chasing the question, why is money such a mystery? Why is it so hard to figure out? Why is money such a mystery? Whether you have a lot or a little, this is something we can all relate to, why does it seem like such an enigma sometimes? Why is it so important to us? Why is it so hard to get? Or why is it so hard to keep? Why is it so hard to manage? Why does it mean so much to me? Why does it mean so much to other people? Why is money such a mystery? So what I want to do as we unpack uh, verse 5 and chapter 6 is, first of all, Solomon addresses at least four myths that we have about money. We think a lot of wrong stuff about money. He's going to talk about at least four myths. So we're going to hit those fairly quickly, and then I want to move to to trying to unpack this enigma and, and understand it. Uh, but first, we've got to look at at least four wrong things we think about money. Uh, we're going to do that uh, starting in verse 10. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10. First myth, those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. First myth about money, money brings satisfaction. Now, we all, we all want to be satisfied. Many people think that money is the way to get there. Money brings satisfaction. As long as I have enough money to buy enough stuff then I'll be happy. The problem is, there's always going to be more stuff. And this, this forgets a fundamental truth that we covered back in week two when we talked about appetites. 
The nature of an appetite is that it will always come back. They never get filled. And nobody eats breakfast and then is done eating for life. Eventually, the bacon and the eggs wear off and you're going to want lunch. Whether we're dealing with food, money, sex, satisfaction, whatever it is, we're chasing it as an appetite and it always keeps coming back. Feeding the appetite is not the end of the road. That's not the solution. Jesus warns against feeding this appetite of, of satisfaction based off of money. He says uh, in Luke 12, Beware and guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Now for many guys, we need to hear that. Women are not exempt from this, but many guys, we tend to keep score in this game of life based off of our bank account or how many vehicles we have parked outside, how well we're doing financially. That's how we think we keep score for life. Jesus says, life's bigger than that. Life's not measured that way. Guard against every kind of greed. Because if we think that money brings satisfaction, it's, we're going to chase money forever, and, and the result of that is a greedy person. All right, second myth about money. I told you we're going to hit him kind of quickly. Uh, verse 11, Solomon says, The more money you have, the more people come to help you spend it. So what good is wealth except to watch it slip through your fingers? Second wrong thing we think about money, second money myth, is that money will solve my problems. Money will solve my problems. Now, money helps, to be sure. I'm not anti-money. It certainly makes a lot of stuff easier. It does. But after a certain point, the law of diminishing returns starts to kick in. And really, we find what, what many people have unfortunately found. The more money we have, the more problems. Right? The, the notorious B.I.G., didn't he hit this perfectly? He said, I don't know what they want from me. It's like the more money we come across, the more problems we see. He hadn't figured out. Solomon suggests at least one of these problems that shows up when money shows up, at least one of the problems, is other greedy people showing up with their hands in our pockets trying to tell us how to spend our money. This myth Solomon exposes here, the, the uh, more money we have, the, the fewer problems we have, it's just, it's just ridiculous. Life's not that easy. You can't throw money at every problem and fix it. Life's more complex than that. This world is more broken and fallen than that. Money's just not going to solve all your problems. Third myth, keep going. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 12, money myth number 3. People who work hard sleep well, whether they eat little or much. But the rich seldom get a good night's sleep. Third money myth, money brings a peace of mind. Joe Lewis, one of my favorite athletes in one of my favorite sports, great boxer, Joe Lewis said, I don't like money, but it, but it quiets my nerves. This, this myth says that my anxieties go down as my bank account goes up. Now, I'll just pause for a second and allow you to go ahead and test that theory with your own experience. Anxieties go down, bank account, bank account goes up. Is that the way it works? It's not. Uh, again, it helps, but it, it's just not that easy. My wife and I, like many couples, are in a stronger position financially than we were when we first got married. Got married and moved into a little two-room apartment. Not a two-bedroom apartment, a two-room apartment that would have fit inside this entire area we're in right now with a, a bunch of donated furniture. We're doing better financially than we were doing back then, 15 years ago, sure. But we have no, no shorter list of problems to solve. The things on our mind that we have to resolve, the things that you know can make us anxious, those things are still there. Money didn't take those things away. What Solomon is trying to replace this myth with is a, is a blue-collar truth. 
a blue-collar work ethic. He says, if you want a good night's sleep, put in a good day's work. That's going to go a whole lot further carrying you through the night than a, a fridge full of food or a, a barn full of toys. Put in a good night's sleep. All right, fourth myth, uh, verses 13 through 15. There's another serious problem I've seen under the sun, Solomon tells us. Hoarding riches harms the saver. Money is put into risky investments that turn sour, and everything is lost. In the end, there's nothing left to pass on to one's children. We all come to the end of our lives as naked and empty-handed as on the day we were born. We can't take our riches with us. All right, what's the fourth myth, the fourth wrong thing we think about money? Money provides security. If I can just crack the mystery on how to build a good investment portfolio, if I just figure that out, well, then I'm, I'm guaranteed to have a comfortable retirement and fully funded uh, education accounts for all my kids. We'll be secure if I can just figure out how to pile up enough money, then I'll be secure. Now, I'm a bit of an investment junkie myself, nothing against the, the market, but I know enough to know that uh, past performance is not an indicator of future success, right? Which really reveals here at least one of the two problems with tying all of your hopes and your dreams and your security and peace to your investment portfolio. At least two problems with that. The first one is you don't know what the market's going to do. You don't know how much money you're going to have tomorrow. You don't know if your money's going to be there or not. You don't know how how soluble and, and, uh, and uh, safe the, the government is to protect you. We really don't know that. We don't. History has shown us that over and over. You don't know if your money's really going to be there in the long term. Second problem with this is you don't know if you're going to be there in the long term. You don't know how long you're going to live. We have no idea. We do know that the person who has the most amount of birthdays is the one who lives the longest. Right? But the problem is we don't know how many birthdays we're going to get. We have no idea. This is the reason why Jesus came to, uh, remember the rich guy in, uh, I think it was in the Gospel of Luke, and he rebuked him because this rich guy is just building a whole bunch of barns to store all of his stuff. I got a bunch of stuff I can store right here. Now I got more stuff. I need to build another barn to store that. I got more stuff. I got to build another barn to stockpile all this stuff just in case I might need it, just in case I want to go back and enjoy it. Jesus says, you have no idea that you're going to live long, long enough to go back and pull all that stuff out of the barn and use it. What makes you think that's going to happen? Money is kind of like manure. If you just pile it up and leave it sitting there, it starts to stink. If you want to get something out of it, you've got to spread it around. Maybe give a little bit of it away. We'll get to that in just a minute. All right, now let me ask you a question. What do you call something that brings you satisfaction, has a solution to your problems, provides complete peace of mind, and enduring security? We would call that thing God, right? God would say, that's my job. That's what I do. That's God's job. The problem comes in, not with money, but when we give money the credit for doing God's job. And, and we often do that, right? And as a result of doing that, when we think, well, I don't really need God because I can get money to make me secure and happy and, and content and, and lower all my anxieties. If we think money can do that, then we tr- start treating money the way we're supposed to treat God. And it's, it's slippery because it's tricky because we do that often. We, we talk about money. We think about money. We obsess over money. We sacrifice for money, right? We sacrifice our health, our free time, our time with our families because we chase it thinking that's the thing that's going to make me secure and happy and content. In other words, we make it into an idol. In a book I cannot recommend strongly enough, one of my favorite authors, Tim Keller, explains how idols are counterfeit gods. Counterfeit. 
Now, our hearts intuitively know that we need God to hold us up and carry us through the universe. Regardless of what you call God, we know that we need something to help us get through day-to-day here in the universe. That's the reason why we rally everything we have around whatever it is we think is sustaining us. Whatever you think is giving you that fulfillment, contentment, security, you pour your heart into it. Too often, that thing that you pour your heart into is a counterfeit. It can't really deliver on what you're hoping it's going to be able to give you. It's an idol pretending to be God. Now, we can make an idol out of anything. I'll show you that in just a second. But money is a real good place to start. Jesus, or Paul said in uh, Colossians 3, Put to death the sinful, earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and don't be greedy. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Worshiping the things of this world. You know, there's a reason why the first commandment is, here from Exodus 20, the first commandment is, you must not love any other God but me. Now, if God made a rule against worshiping other gods, then it's safe to assume there are other gods to be worshipped. Right? I mean, I read this, and I think, must not worship any other god. Well, what are my options? And that's the reason for the second commandment. Go right on to the next verse in Exodus. You must not make an idol for yourself of any kind. See, any, we, our, our hearts are constantly pinging, looking for something to worship. John Calvin said, the, the human heart is an idol factory. It's an idol factory because we're constantly looking for something to worship. And there's nothing wrong with that. Stick with me. God made us that way. God made you to worship. Everybody worships something. We all do. There's nothing wrong with worshiping. It's how we're designed. The problem comes when we make uh, anything other than the God of heaven the thing that we decide to worship. That thing, we've turned it into an idol. And here's what's tricky. Here's what's tricky about idols. Here's where the mystery comes in. We rarely pick a bad thing to make an idol out of. Quite the contrary. Usually we pick a very good thing. The the more good something is, the, the more possibility it has to make us feel good, the more tendency, the more the temptation is for us to actually worship that thing. We take good things and we turn them into ultimate things and worship them, and, and then they become an idol. Right? We do it with uh, our spouses. If we think our spouse is going to fulfill us and, and make us whole, we do it with our kids. We do it with our careers. We do it with our bank accounts. Because we, we, we think those things are able to give us meaning and fulfillment and contentment. Anything can work. How do you know if you've turned a good thing into an idol? by worshiping it as an ultimate thing. I want to read this quote exactly from Keller. He says, An idol is whatever you look at and say, If I have that, then I will feel my life has meaning. Then I will know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. If I have that. There are many ways to describe that kind of a relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. In other words, if anything becomes more fundamental than God, listen, if anything is more fundamental than God, to your happiness, to your meaning in life, and your identity, then that thing is an idol. Approach it from a a different angle. What are the things that are so close to your heart that even the threat of losing them 
makes you instantaneously anxious or furious. There are certain things that we value so much, those things are really a thermostat for our emotions. And they control how we feel just like that. Let me ask you this. What is it in your life that if you were to lose that thing, your, your life would no longer have meaning? You would just fall into a pit of despair. If that thing is anything other than your relationship with the creator of the universe, then it's an idol. Now, hear me out, listen. Because to be clear, there are obviously things in our life, certainly people in our life, that if they were to be gone, we would be deeply sorrowful. But we, we need to know the difference between sorrow and despair. Because sorrow comes when you lose a good thing from among other good things. Right? So I, if I were to lose my job, which I love, I love what I do, if I were to lose my job, it would make me very sad. It would, it would give me sorrow. But then I, I, would, I would be consoled by the other good things still in my life. My relationship with my family, my friends, my faith. My job, even my relationship with my wife. As good as those are, it's one good thing among other good things in my life. Despair comes when we lose the ultimate thing. When we lose the ultimate thing that's giving us meaning, we fall into a pit of despair where consolation and, and help and comfort can no longer reach us. Because we've lost that only thing that was, that was propping us up. Just to sum up this whole mystery thing in verse 17, Solomon says, Throughout their lives they live under a cloud, frustrated, discouraged, and angry. Isn't that descriptive? You ever feel like you're walking around with this storm cloud just following you everywhere you go? Well, Solomon would say this is what happens when we worship something that's not meant to be worshipped. Whether it's a career, sex, relationship, a bank account, those things are not designed to be worshipped, and this is important, <clears throat> it's not fair to them when we worship them. Because they can't support that kind of pressure. You, your, your spouse cannot give you meaning. Your kids cannot give you ultimate fulfillment. Your, your job cannot give you identity. Those things are, are firmly in God's category. So when we try to get them from things down here on earth, they just, they just buckle underneath the pressure. It crushes them. We fall into despair without any comfort or satisfaction. Solomon says in verse uh, chapter six, verse three, a man might have a hundred children and live to be very old, but he find, if he finds no satisfaction in life and doesn't even get a decent burial, it would have been better for him to be to be born dead. Now, typical of Ecclesiastes, that's a that's a heavy statement, full of some tough love, but Solomon doubles down though. He says when we worship the wrong thing. We're, we're better off having never been born. Your birth would have been meaningless. You would have, you would have ended in darkness. You, would, you wouldn't even have had a name. However, that guy, even though he would have never have seen the sun or known its existence, he would have had more peace than in growing up to be an unhappy man. We've all met cranky old guys, right? They just always have something wrong with them. They're either always the victim or they're always angry. They're always mad about something. No satisfaction in life. Solomon sums that up in verse 6. He might live a thousand years twice over, but still not find contentment. And since he must die like everyone else, well, what's the use? Verse 6 
is the result of idolatry. That last verse there. Specifically, greed. Because every day, rich people die unhappy, never understanding the mystery of their discontentment. How do we avoid that? How do we make sure that's not our fate? How do we start to solve this mystery? Well, I think we need to understand that when it comes to money, there are four kinds of people. Four kinds of people, and it boils down to two questions. How did you get your money, and how do you use your money? How do you get your money, and how do you use your money? Let's look at this chart here for just a second. Now, certainly here's the easy one. We all understand that there are unrighteous rich people. We get that, right? We love to to beat up on the rich. Stick it to the rich. Okay, maybe. Maybe people are unrighteous and rich because the way that the rich person got his money was dishonest, and the way that he used his money was was greedy. It was greedy. Okay, certainly. However, I hate to break it to some of you, there are also unrighteous poor people. Being poor is not automatically a ticket to being a righteous person. Maybe it it all comes down to those two things. How did you get your money? Well, or in this case, how did you not get money? Well, maybe the reason you're poor is just because you're lazy. Or maybe the reason you're poor is because the way you used your money is wasteful. You were wasteful with it. I mean, I got people in my own family tree. Right? You can't give them money because they buy stupid stuff with it. And then they get upset and wonder why they never have any money. Ah, oh, always, you know, it's always the man keeping me down. Maybe you're just wasteful. Or maybe you're just lazy. Maybe that's the reason why you're poor. Now, sure, we, we worship a homeless guy who died naked, hanging on a tree, without a penny to his name. Absolutely, Jesus was poor. But that's not what made him righteous. Being poor doesn't automatically make you righteous. It doesn't work that way. However, you don't need to have a huge bank account to be a righteous person. You can be poor and righteous. If the way you get your money is through honest hard work, and then when you get your money, the way you use it is as a good steward, then you can be righteous. There There are plenty of poor, righteous people in the Bible. There are plenty of poor, righteous people on earth. And this is true. You need some of you need to hear this. There are plenty of rich, righteous people. Just because because you have a lot of money doesn't mean automatically that you're a sinner. If you got your money through honest, righteous ways, and and you're generous and you're a good steward with your money, there's righteousness in that. There's a lot of goodness to be found in it. If you fall into that righteous category, whether you have a lot or a little. Solomon would say, I've noticed one thing at least that is good. It is good for people to eat and drink and enjoy their work under the sun during the short life God has given them and to accept their lot in life. And it is a good thing to receive wealth from God and the good health to enjoy it. To enjoy your work and accept your lot in life, this is a gift from God. And look at verse 20. God keeps such people so busy enjoying life that they take no time to brood over the past. Would you like that to be said of you? I'm just so busy enjoying life. Yeah, I got problems. I got things behind me that that bothered me yesterday or last year, and tomorrow's going to have some issues of its own. But I'm just so busy enjoying life right now, I don't have time to think about that stuff. We call that contentment. Verse 20 is, is what we're all after. We all want to feel content. And as we've said all morning, our hearts are a radar looking for something that's going to give us contentment. God 
puts that into us to constantly seek it out. But he also leaves within us the freedom to decide what we're going to settle on. If we use that freedom to settle on anything other than God, it's going to fall, it's going to crush, we're going to be in despair. Now, the problem, specifically for Americans, is that our entire economic system is built on coveting. The only reason reason our economic system works is because of this phrase right here. I have a blank, but I want a blank. I have a truck, but I want a bigger truck. I have a wife, but I want another wife. I have a house, but I want two houses. I have a kid, but it's a midget demon, so I want another kid. I have a, but I want a. I have a, but I want a. The end result of that coveting system, here, verse 7, Solomon says, these people spend their, all people spend their, their lives scratching for food, but they never seem to have enough. Again, it's a mystery. Why don't I have enough? I have all this stuff. I have all these barns. Well, it's because that's not where satisfaction is coming from. Our, our whole American way of life is built on a mirage. We're, we're climbing all these ladders that are leaning against the wrong building. We're running on all these treadmills wondering why we never arrive at contentment. When all the while we're just saying, one more, one more, one more, one more. It's a mirage. Kind of like a casino in the desert, right? Why is money such a mystery? How do we solve the mystery? Well, here's the key. Verse 9. Enjoy what you have. Enjoy what you have rather than desiring what you don't have. Just dreaming about nice things is meaningless, like chasing the wind. We need to shift the object of our desire. Desire is not bad, but the problem is we need to stop wanting what we don't have. We need to stop desiring what we don't have and instead desire what we do have, what's already in our hands. You know one of the things that's so great about my marriage? I want my wife. I like her. I do. I like being with her, and I want her a lot. And I already have her. That's a win-win. When you want what you have, the result is contentment. Let me say that again. When you want what you have, the result is contentment. Let's close with that. Because it's been said that the last nine commandments are really commentary and instructions about how to keep the first one. Right? Worship only God, and here's nine rules to help you make sure you only worship God. I think of those, of all ten of them, right, the last one is the hardest practically for us to keep sometimes. That last one, yeah, don't covet. Don't be jealous. If, if wanting what you have is contentment, coveting is wanting what you don't have. So the key to all this system, the, the key to cracking the mystery is deciding to want what you already have. Sure, keep working hard, be industrious, absolutely. But don't stop wanting what you already have. That's where contentment is. It's already in your hand. Now that becomes much simpler when we realize that we already have everything we need in our relationship with Jesus. That's something that can never be taken away, can never plunge us into despair, because it's all bundled into the person of Jesus Christ. I'll give Peter the last words on that. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are promises that enable you to share his divine nature and 
escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. I pray you would meditate on that verse this week. Amen.